Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, we're in that season of the year as we prepare to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ into our history, into our lives, uh, the Feast of the Incarnation, Christmastide. Well, today it's Lecture Day on the Beeson Podcast, and the lecturer is Dr. Simon Gathercole, and his topic is the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the pre-existent Son. Well, that's a very Christmassy kind of uh, theme, uh, because the Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. What is the biblical root of this primal idea about the preexistence of Jesus Christ? It's very debated in theology. Not everybody agrees with it. Is it biblical? Well, those are the questions that Dr. Simon Gathercole addressed here at Beeson Divinity School when he gave our biblical studies lectures in 2005. Now, Dr. Gathercole at that time was teaching at the University of Aberdeen. However, he's since moved to the University of Cambridge, and also he teaches in Durham in, in Great Britain. One of the really outstanding New Testament scholars of our time today. Uh, he's written what I consider the singular best book on Pauline theology called Where is Boasting? Early Jewish Soteriology and Paul's Response in Romans 1 through 5, published by Erdman's in 2002. That is a fantastic book. And the lectures we're going to hear today were uh, grist for the mill as he developed his, you might say, his second major monograph, though he's written many other things as well. And this one was called The Preexistent Son, Recovering the Christologies of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So let's listen to Dr. Simon Gathercole as he speaks here at Beeson Divinity School from our Biblical Studies Lectures in the year 2005 as a part of our discipline of getting ready for Christmas and understanding the real depth meaning of the fact that Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son, has come among us as a baby in a manger. It's a great privilege to be here at Beeson. Thank you very much for your um, invitation. Um, I can't promise you wonderful lectures, but I can promise you the wonderful subject matter of the pre-existence of Christ, the eternal life of the Son in fellowship with the Father. And this theological issue has been greatly discussed and uh, disputed, especially in recent decades. So, for example, the English uh, Anglican theologian John Macquarie wrote a book called Jesus Christ in Modern Thought, effectively attempting to debunk the notion of pre-existence The German Catholic, Karl Josef Kuschel, similarly wrote a book specifically devoted to the topic of pre-existence and challenging the traditional conception of it. And most recently, the very well-known Lutheran-American theologian, uh, Robert Jensen, who's uh, perhaps known to some of you as an expert on Jonathan Edwards, uh, has recently written a systematic theology in which he takes apart the traditional doctrine of Christ and puts it back together again in a very unconventional way. Part of the reason for the controversy over the pre-existence of Christ and the attempt by some theologians to dismiss it is the result of New Testament scholars. So New Testament scholars have a good deal of blame to shoulder for this. 
And this is because a lot of New Testament scholars have argued that the doctrine of the pre-existence of Christ is in fact a very late and marginal doctrine in the New Testament, in earliest Christianity. So this is why I've, I've just written a monograph uh, attempting to argue that pre-existence is in fact uh, very widely dispersed in the New Testament and is a, is a great deal more important than a number of people have thought. So in these lectures, I hope to show uh, that the pre-existence of Christ can actually be found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which if you know anything about New Testament Christology and the contemporary discussions of it, it's quite a controversial thesis to argue anyway. The idea that the pre-existence of Christ is a marginal and late doctrine in earliest Christianity in the New Testament uh, basically is the result of something like the following scholarly account scholarly account which people usually give of the development of Christology in earliest Christianity. It goes something like this. In either a few years BC or a few years AD, Jesus was born in probably Nazareth according to this view and later emerged in a movement led by John the Baptist to whom he was probably related. On this account, John the Baptist's leadership was then undercut by Jesus who emerged as an even greater figure than John the Baptist. And so Jesus led a reform movement within uh, the Judaism of the time in which he proclaimed himself as an eschatological prophet announcing the presence or imminence of the kingdom of God. He drew a number of disciples to himself as a kind of nucleus of the restored Israel. Uh, however, his popularity and his uh, challenge to the Jewish leadership of the day led to plots against him. So he was actually in the end an, a failed eschatological prophet who was put to death through the Roman means of execution by crucifixion. However, after this, staggeringly, some of his followers claimed to have seen him in visions and this uh, visionary experience that was uh, a, a factor of the disciples' life after the crucifixion of Jesus led some of them to proclaim him as Messiah. And as earliest Christianity developed, he was then viewed as a kind of semi-divine figure because of the feeling that early, earliest disciples had that he was even present with them in their worship of God. So he was called on as Lord, a Lord who was present with the disciples as they worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The final stage of this Christological de development a few decades later is now seen in the Gospel of John or the fourth Gospel. Uh, this is particularly the product of another community, a, a community led by the elder John, not the Baptist. And here Jesus was understood as the very incarnation of God himself as having always existed and having had fellowship with the Father in a pre-existent state before the life in Israel from the time. So John's Gospel on this model, on this scholarly account, represents the full flowering of Christological development in the New Testament period. By contrast, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, have taken a snapshot of Jesus in the middle of this development in the middle of this Christological growth. They stop short of describing him as a divine being who was pre-existent prior to his, his life in Israel, uh, and although they nevertheless see him as Messiah. 
Now, this scholarly account is this is a sort of slightly artificial distillation of what you see in much scholarship, but uh, and some scholars would see it as a bit messier than that. But I think it's a fair general outline that I can give you for purposes of space without it dying the death of a thousand qualifications. But let me give you three reasons why I'm sceptical of this whole paradigm. First, a point just to make very briefly is that I think this whole scholarly paradigm seriously underestimates the historical reliability of John's Gospel. If you know John's Gospel at all well, you'll know that Jesus makes staggering statements about himself even as pre-existent, before Abraham was, I am, and there are numerous other statements which John makes uh, with his own lips, with his own pen, about the pre-existence of Christ, most notably in the Johannine prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Most scholars, however, uh, consider the statements by John himself as a later development and see the statements that John has put on the lips of Jesus as anachronistic, as John putting his own words into the mouth of Jesus. But I think a number of conservative scholars have questioned this, and in particular there's an excellent study of this theme by Craig Blomberg, which appeared two or three years ago, and he makes an excellent case for... uh, the historical reliability of John's Gospel, not least by making a compelling argument for the beloved disciple, the companion of Jesus himself, being the author of the fourth Gospel. So I'd recommend that book um, to you. Secondly, I think that the letters of Paul seriously scupper the evolutionary or developmental story of Christology which I outlined above. Paul's letters are, of course, among the earliest documents of the New Testament, and you can see pre-existence, I would maintain, all over the place in Paul. So if you're thinking about the the crucifixion and resurrection having taken place in sort of 30 or 33, Paul's letters date probably from, to sort of take the first letter, which is either Galatians or uh, 1 Thessalonians, according to your reconstruction of Paul's career, in 49 or 50. So I think that we can see in Paul active personal pre-existence. Let me explain what I mean by that. Pre-existence in itself is, uh, as as I've been talking about, the eternal son having a life and existence prior to the incarnation in fellowship with God. The personal bit of personal pre-existence refers to the fact that Christ didn't merely exist prior to the incarnation as something like an idea in the mind of God, but actually existed as a personal uh, as a person in relationship with the Father, as sharing in, in the same kind of personhood that the Father himself has. On the other hand, active personal pre-existence, the active part refers to the fact that Christ is not only a person, but also an agent in his pre-existent life. So it refers particularly to the Son's agency in creation, the fact that the Son participates with the Father in the work of creation, and then, again, takes an active role in the incarnation. He's not merely someone who's sort of sent into the world against his will, but willingly goes into the world and takes on human flesh. One of the places where scholars find it particularly difficult to avoid the clear implication of pre-existence is in Philippians 2. And I've given you the uh, quote from Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8 there. This is Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not reckon equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, coming in human likeness, and being found 
in appearance as a man, and so on and so on. Uh, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So I think there are two particular points which are instructive here uh, and giving us an insight into Paul's understanding of Christ's pre-existence. First of all, you can see at the beginning of that quotation, there is a transition from Christ being in the form of God to taking the form of a servant. So if taking, a form, taking the form of a servant refers to the entirety of Christ's earthly ministry, there seems to have been a state that he existed in prior to that, in the form of God. So there's a sort of dramatic sequence from Christ being in the form of God to him taking on the form of a servant, a sort of before and after, if you like. Secondly, there's detailed here in the so-called Philippians hymn, it doesn't matter whether it's a hymn or not, but uh, there's a, a detail here which points to how this transformation took place, how this translation from the form of God to the form of the servant takes place. I'm not getting, if you're, if you're anxious about uh, whether Jesus is sort of losing the form of God or anything like that, I'm not, I'm, not I'm not talking about that and I don't want to get into that in this particular lecture. We can talk about that in the questions afterwards. But how does this transformation take place? Well, it takes place as the result of Christ's own action. It is under the initiative of the Father and an action of the Father as well that Christ is sent into the human sphere. But it's also Christ's, the Son's own work. So if you look at the words that are used, he emptied himself. Christ himself undertakes to assume the form of a servant. He emptied himself. So his act of emptying himself in the incarnation is placed in parallel with his uh, obedience to the point of death. Both of these events are the actions of the Son himself. Now, a number of scholars have questioned this understanding of Philippians 2, one of the most prominent being the uh, Catholic uh, Jerome Murphy O'Connor, and he rather cavalierly dismisses the idea of pre-existence here being based merely on a sort of special understanding of the form of God, the morphetheou in Greek here. But in fact, it doesn't rely on any particular understanding of morphetheou to see pre-existence in the passage at all. Some other scholars have questioned the presence of pre-existence here by arguing that the template for Christ's action here is actually the Adam story in Genesis 1 to 3. Unlike Adam, who uh, did consider the form of equality with God as something to be grasped, Jesus didn't. So this is a, a story about Jesus' earthly ministry. But again, I don't think that does justice to the specific details that is, are in the hymn here. It can only be done by taking a rather broad brushstroke approach to the passage. So there are some excellent comments on uh, the hymn here by N.T. Wright, who's uh, very, very good in his analysis of Paul's Christology. As he puts it, no mere personification then, but a person, a conscious individual entity is envisaged. The pre-existent son regarded equality with God not as excusing him from the task of redemptive suffering and death, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for that vocation. So Wright sees pre-existence as prominent here in Philippians 2. Not quite so strong, but almost as significant for this uh, transition in the incarnation comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 
The statement is, though he was rich, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, pre-existence here, I think, is indicated by the statement which supplies a prior state of the Son before the incarnation, just as there's the trans, uh, transition from being in the form of God to taking on the form of a servant. So here, there's riches before and poverty afterwards. Now, there's obviously no particular place in his earthly ministry where he was rich and he gave up his earthly riches for earthly poverty. So this probably picks up either on uh, early Jewish understandings of heaven as full of gold and riches, such as you see in the book of Revelation. Heaven is a place where the, where the, the city is paved with uh, gold and jewels and so on. Uh, perhaps Jesus is giving up that position of riches to come to the poverty of earth and death on a cross. Or perhaps it taps into, an, into the idea of Jesus sharing a glorious relationship with the Father uh, before the beginning of time in eternity. And it's that, that, that immediate uh, relation to the glory of the Father that Jesus is giving up in the incarnation. Either way, Paul is talking about a, a gracious move by Christ from the riches of heaven and God to the poverty of his earthly life leading to death on a cross. So I think Philippians 2 and 2 Corinthians 8 both point here to the gracious character of the work of Christ on the cross. And they use the motif of pre-existence to highlight that. Secondly, uh, I talked about the active pre-existence of Christ referring to his action in the incarnation, but also in his action as co-agent with the Father in the work of creation. So way back, Christ is not just an eschatological figure, but actually also a protological figure, a, a figure there at the beginning involved in the work of Genesis 1 and 2 in creation. Now, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul engages in a reinterpretation or a, a reevaluation, an understanding of the Jewish Shema, the statement in Deuteronomy 6, where where, where uh, the author talks about one, uh, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Now in this statement, uh, Paul takes this up and talks about the one Lord as Jesus Christ and the one God as the Father. Whereas for Paul's Jewish contemporaries, this one God and one Lord would have been one monolithic, in, 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 inseparable entity Paul, in a sense, fragments uh, and bifurcates the one God and one Lord into one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And he talks about the one Lord, Jesus Christ, here as the one through whom all things came and through whom we live. So if Christ here is the one through whom all things came, then it's very difficult to avoid the implication that Paul sees the Son, sees Christ as involved in the work of creation. And this is amplified again in the epistle to the Colossians. In Colossians 1.16, because in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, things seen and unseen, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So Paul lists a staggeringly universal account of all things, whether physical or spiritual, all these things came, to being, came into being ultimately from the Father and through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, there's some ambiguity as to what Paul means by creation being from the Father and through the Son. And I, I don't really want to try and uh, solve that uh, question here today. In fact, uh, I probably can't. So uh, I'll stop and won't say anything more about that. But uh, what we can see is that Christ is definitely pictured as a co-agent with the Father in the work of creation. Thirdly, with Paul, uh, and perhaps most mysteriously, Christ is portrayed as active in the history of Israel. So in these two references in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, there's the first one that the rock which gave water to the people of Israel in the book of Numbers. So you, there is a connection between yesterday's sermon and the book of Numbers to uh, Christ's pre-existence. The rock that uh, gave, gave water to the nation when Moses uh, struck, struck it with a stick twice was in fact Christ. Christ was the source of that water and the source of that blessing to the nation. And it's interesting that some of Paul's Jewish contemporaries uh, had a reasonably similar interpretation of this rock. Philo, for example, talks about the rock being wisdom, supplying the nation with understanding of God. And so Paul may be uh, tapping into the fact that already in early Judaism there was some speculation about what this mysterious water-producing rock might have been. So Paul certainly thinks, I think, that uh, Christ is active in Israel's wilderness experience here because the argument doesn't really work if it's not Christ who is providing the water. In 1 Corinthians 10 here Paul is arguing that in the, uh, that in the wilderness Christ was accompanying the Israelites but that that did not prevent them from being overthrown. The mere accompaniment of Christ nearby didn't stop the Israelites dying in the wilderness, almost, almost all of them. So Paul goes on here to warn the Corinthians of the same thing. They're in some way in the same situation as the Israelites. And so in verse 9, in the other reference to the pre-existent Christ in the, in the chapter, the Corinthians ought not to test Christ as some of them, some of the Israelites did. So the Israelites were testing Christ when they were rebelling against God in the wilderness. So that's pretty much uh, the picture in Paul. There are some other passages in Paul that I could talk about, but I think those are some of the clearest ones. So we've got the problem of the historical reliability of John's gospel, uh, talking about Christ himself, talking about his pre-existence, and, and an early, another early Christian talking about him. We've got Paul's presentation of Christ as pre-existent very early on in the history of earliest Christianity. So it's not just a final full flowering of Christological development at the end of the first century. Here's Paul talking about Christ as pre-existent in the middle of the first century, even before the uh, synoptic gospels are written. Thirdly, Jesus is portrayed as a heavenly figure, there are strong indications, in Matthew, Mark and Luke. So I think this is perhaps... Uh, some of the most useful evidence to prepare the way, if you like, for my overall argument that the Synoptic Gospels uh, present Jesus as someone who transcends the heaven and earth boundary, who, 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 who breaks down the divide between heaven on the one hand and earth on the other. So he has a heavenly identity. That is, he's a figure who's not merely firmly planted on earth, but is also in the course of his ministry, not just after the resurrection, but already in the course of his ministry, active and operating in the heavenly sphere as well. 
So the first indication of that, I think, comes in the portrayal of Jesus as the heavenly son in the transfiguration. Just read that uh, passage. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. So taking the very beginning, and some some of these points are sort of more tentative, but I think they build up to a strong picture of Jesus as a heavenly figure in this transfiguration. First of all, Jesus ascends a high mountain and by the action of God is transformed. So a number of commentators have already talked about how in biblical tradition and in Jewish tradition as well, a mountain, when someone ascends to a mountain, they're ascending effectively to a kind of suburb of heaven, somewhere which is a kind of stairway to heaven or a midpoint between heaven and earth. It's not heaven itself in this mountain, but it is a kind of suburb thereof. In verse 3, uh, I haven't marked the verse divisions on the uh, handout, but uh, you can see that when Jesus is transformed, his clothes become radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. No launderer on earth could have washed them to such uh, a heavenly whiteness. As Craig Evans puts it in his commentary, the whiteness of the garments transcends the power of the best launderer on earth. And Richard Borkham has pointed out that shining garments are not necessarily evidence of a divine person, but they are strongly resonant of a heavenly identity. So in his discussion of the motif of shining garments in Jewish literature, he writes the following, talks of a standard, quote, a standard set of descriptives that could be used to describe any heavenly being, including quite ordinary as well as quite exalted heavenly beings. The basic idea behind all these descriptions is that heaven and its inhabitants are shining and bright. Hence the descriptions employ a stock series of images of brightness. The heavenly beings or their dress are typically shining like the sun or the stars, gleaming like bronze or precious stones, fiery like torches or lightning, dazzling white like snow or pure wool. Now, he's not actually talking about Jesus in the transfiguration there. He's talking about the portrayal of angels in a number of early Jewish texts. But similarly, these heavenly figures have shining white garments. For a parallel, even in the Gospel of Mark itself, we can see that uh, in the portrayal of the resurrection in Mark's Gospel in chapter 16, in Mark 16:5, there is a reference to a young man in a white robe who is clearly, uh, in the context, an angel. In Matthew's and Luke's accounts of the transfiguration, even more so, it's explicit that it's not only Jesus' clothes which are transformed, but also his face as well. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus' face shines like the sun, and in Luke's gospel, uh, his appearance is altered as he's praying. So up on the mountain, and then his shining white garments point to his heavenly identity. Thirdly, in verse 4, the conversation with Elijah and Moses. So again, he's in heavenly company here and his conversation shows to which world he belongs. As one German commentator has put on this, uh, I won't read out the German, but it translates roughly as the fact that Elijah and Moses speak with Jesus indicates that Jesus belongs to their world. 
That's uh, Rudolf Pesch in his enormous two-volume German commentary on uh, Mark's Gospel. One thing which he gets wrong, though, I think, about the Transfiguration is to present the idea that the Transfiguration doesn't reveal who Jesus integrally and intrinsically is, but merely reveals something prophetic about who he's going to be at the end. So a number of scholars use this word proleptic, which means that the Transfiguration is a kind of forecast of what the glory of the Son of Man is going to be like when he returns with the angels and so on. At the moment, Jesus' true identity is as a servant uh, without any kind of heavenly glory, but he's going to be seen in the glory that's going to be given to him at the end. Where this view falls down, I think, is in the final part of the Transfiguration account, in the fact that his heavenly identity is strongly tied to his identity as the Son. Jesus' heavenly identity in the Transfiguration is his identity as the Son. And you can see that uh, in, at the end of the transfiguration, a cloud overshadowed them, that's uh, all of them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The person who's transformed into heavenly whiteness and in conversation with Elijah and Moses is the son of God. And Jesus' identity as, as son of God is not something which simply comes to him at some later stage in the gospel or at the end with, the coming, uh, with his coming in the clouds and in glory. His identity as son is something which is true all the way through the gospels, which is, as, which is true as far back as you can go in the gospels. It's declared in the baptism. It's declared already in the virgin birth. So already as far back as you can go, he is already the heavenly exalted uh, son. The next point about uh, Jesus being portrayed as a heavenly figure already in uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke, well, that, this is actually just Matthew and Mark, is the statement in Mark 13:32. And one commentary which I read recently actually talked about uh, how although this was in some ways an embarrassment for, an, uh, for the early church, it talks about Jesus' ignorance of the day of the parousia, it's actually a very strikingly exalted uh, Christological statement. Uh, the statement is, about that day and hour, the day of the coming of the Son of Man, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Now what we have here, I think, is an implied hierarchy of heavenly beings. Jesus is sandwiched be between the angels on the one hand and the Father on the other. He's even more exalted a heavenly figure than the angels. The point of the statement, of course, the, the premise underlying it, is that we would, of course, expect the Son and the angels to know about the final day, perhaps. They, as members of the heavenly council, as sharing fellowship with God, would be expected to know the heavenly secrets, and including the date of the end. But Jesus says that despite who they are, God has kept secret even from them, the time when the end will come. So, just to, just to wrap it up, the presupposition is that Jesus as a heavenly being, like God and the angels, might have known but don't. Uh, as I say, this applies only to Matthew and Mark. Luke uh, leaves the saying out. So I mentioned uh, in the course of this that there's an idea that Jesus is present, even as he's on earth, in the heavenly council. A 
a, a, a concept, an idea which is very familiar to a lot of, a lot of Old Testament scholars, the idea of the divine council where God presides over a court of the heavenly host, but which most New Testament scholars don't really think about enough, I think. But I think there are places in the New Testament where this idea comes through. And you can see it in particular in Revelation, but it comes out elsewhere as well, I think. So another, another place which has the premise of Jesus' knowledge about heavenly secrets is in this statement in Luke 20 that I put on the handout. Uh, that the, na- the disciples' names are written in heaven. Now here Jesus' knowledge uh, is closer, uh, is not the knowledge of a kind of normal human being, but is close to that possessed by exalted angelic figures. The contents of the book of life are a heavenly secret, but the contents of the book of life are a heavenly secret that Jesus does have insight into and access to in a way that he doesn't or didn't with the uh, date of the end. Uh, this passage from Luke 10:20 goes on into the next passage, which is also paralleled in Matthew. And here we get what's been known uh, to some scholars as the thunderbolt from the Johannine heaven, uh, as if sort of scholars can't really envisage Matthew, Mark and Luke having an exalted portrayal of of Jesus, that this uh, is a one-off, which is kind of Johannine. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your decree or good pleasure or something like that. The Greek word is eudokia. So here Jesus is represented as having uh, insight and even activity in God's election. Now here, as a result of that, obviously there's a strong degree of intimacy of Jesus with the Father in the knowledge of heavenly secrets, the knowledge of who is elect and who is not. So in this respect, there's a a similarity with the previous uh, heavenly hierarchy passage. Also striking is the mysterious statement in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you so that your faith might not fail. Here again, there's a picture of the heavenly council. Uh, a bit like we get in, in the, beginning, cha- in the uh, beginning of Job, in the opening two chapters of Job, where Satan goes and asks God if he can have the person of Job, uh, and God gives him permission uh, to do his worst, but uh, as long as he doesn't uh, kill Job. Uh, Jesus here is in a similar position, petitioning the Father for Simon Peter, so that Satan might not be allowed to have control over him. So here, actually, Jesus is fulfilling the ministry that is common in Jewish tradition, commonly attributed to the archangel Michael. Normally in in early Judaism and in in the rabbis, it's the archangel Michael who pleads on behalf of people against Satan before God. But here, Jesus has this heavenly ministry. So the implications of this, uh, I think, are that Jesus is privy to the events that are going on in the heavenly realm. First of all, he knows somehow that Satan has asked to sift Simon like wheat. And then secondly, he has this heavenly function, as well as this heavenly knowledge, this function that he is a heavenly intercessor uh, combating Satan. Finally, and perhaps of even greater significance than any of these, are the numerous places in the gospel Gospels, where Jesus is identified as he really is only by other heavenly figures. So uh, the examples that I've given here are by the evil spirits and by God. 
If you know, if you know Mark's gospel, you'll know that, that Jesus isn't recognised who he really is by people until the time of the cross. Whereas all the way through his ministry, up to that point, he is recognised for who he is by God and the demons. Uh, so just to read these two out. Uh, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the demon says, the Holy One of God. And then again, a couple of chapters later, the unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, you are the Son of God. Now, I think these are especially significant because it's not the case, it's not simply the case that Jesus is performing the occasional heavenly action. This is not concerned with Jesus' functions, but with Jesus' actual identity, who he is. They emphasize that Jesus, again, throughout his ministry, has this high, heavenly, identi he he heavenly identity that's only truly recognized by other heavenly figures, by God himself and by the demons. So the example of, of God declaring and recognizing uh, Jesus' true identity uh, comes, we've seen in the Transfiguration, this is my son. Uh, and there's also the very clear example in the baptism as well, uh, where, uh, the, where God talks about Jesus as the son in whom I am well pleased, my beloved son. So that's the preliminary stages of the argument for pre-existence. It's not actually the argument for pre-existence itself, but it's attempted to clear the ground for an argument for pre-existence, sort of build up the case by showing that pre-existence is there very early on in the history of earliest Christianity, uh, even before the synoptic gospel writers were writing, uh, and not just a final development, uh, as John writes at the end of the first century. And also that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, generally portray Jesus as a heavenly figure anyway. So, is there actual grounds for seeing pre-existence itself in the Synoptic Gospels? Well, just in closing, I want to uh, just show you how I'm going to try and argue this in the next two lectures. And here, the crucial things are the I have come sayings of Jesus. Uh, and those ten references there are to the uh, coming statements in the Synoptic Gospels, the coming with a purpose. Now, the first two, uh, I've read one of them out already, is, are actually not I have come statements, by, but questions where the demons say, have you come in order to do such and such? They're not spoken by Jesus himself, but by uh, other figures to him. Then numbers three, four, five, six, seven, and eight are the actual proper I have come in order to do such and such statements. Then the last two, numbers nine and ten, are not I have come in order to do such and such statements, but they are the Son of Man has come in order to do such and such statements. So, uh, but of course that's, uh, on, in, the, in the words of Jesus, equivalent to saying I have come because Jesus sees himself as the Son of Man and the Gospel writers certainly do as well. Now the key point that I'm going to emphasize in the following lectures is that what these have in common, in, in common is that they talk of Jesus coming with a purpose. In each of these, there's talk of Jesus coming in order to do something or other, whether it's Jesus himself or Jesus talking of the Son of Man or the demons talking. So I think simply on the logical level, since Jesus is summar summarizing his earthly ministry, for example, as coming to seek and save the lost, Jesus has come in order to do this, 
He perhaps might have come from somewhere. That's what coming normally means. I have come uh, from a prior place, a prior state, in order to carry out the earthly ministry. So this also implies, I think, that this coming, this coming with a purpose, talks about Jesus as coming as a deliberate act. Just as with Philippians 2, the transition from Jesus being in the form of God to being in the form of a servant is the result of the action of Jesus in taking on human flesh. So here, perhaps, there's a reference to Jesus coming as a deliberate act to the earthly sphere to carry out his ministry. And such a deliberate act, of course, requires a sort of before and after, a willing agent who is doing the coming. And as well, in addition to that, a place of origin from which the person has come. So the sort of natural sense, I think, that someone would attach to a statement, I have come to do such and such, would be that the person was previously not carrying out the task somewhere else, but now has come to the present sphere to carry it out. And in the case of Jesus, the coming, the tasks that are associated with Jesus' coming are his whole ministry. So when he talks about, I have come to do such and such, he's not talking about, I have come to Capernaum from my home in Nazareth to do this. But he's talking about his whole earthly activity. Uh, this at least is the hypothesis that I'm going to advance. Uh, I've, I'm not uh, claiming to have argued for it already, but uh, this is what I'm going to try and argue as we go. Um, now this kind of literal sense of the coming statements is supported, I think, by the fact that all the other explanations of scholars to interpret these I have come sayings are uh, unconvincing, I think. So let me give you an example. Uh, a number of scholars see this reference where Jesus says, I have come to do such and such, as a reference to Jesus' prophetic self-understanding. Remember on the normal scholarly account of earliest Christology, Jesus is, sees himself as a prophet or an eschatological prophet. And so perhaps these I have come sayings tap into that prophetic tradition. Now the problem with this is that there's no prophet in Israel's history in the Old Testament or in early Judaism, as far as I can find, who announces his ministry with the words, I have come to do such and such. So, I mean, it's a possible parallel, but who knows, because there's no evidence for it. Uh, another parallel, and perhaps the most commonly uh, adduced one to Jesus' I have come sayings, comes from the first century Jewish writer Josephus. And I put this quotation on the handout. Uh, Josephus at one point in his ministry says, I have come to do such and such. And so scholars say, well, Jesus' statement here and Josephus, Jesus' statement in the Gospels and Josephus' statement, Josephus obviously isn't an incarnation of, of any figure. So they're both just sort of talking in a very portentous way about the importance of their presence uh, in, 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 in wherever they are. So the Josephus statement is on your handout. Uh, where he's addressing the Roman Emperor Vespasian. You imagine Vespasian, Josephus is saying, that in the person of Josephus you have taken a mere captive, but I have come to you as a messenger of greater things. Ego de angelos hercosoi met donon. But I think there's a fundamental difference between this statement by Josephus and the statements of Jesus. In particular, the statement by Josephus refers to a single event in his life. Where he's come, where he's been uh, rooted, he's been rooted out of a cave by uh, the Roman soldiers, and he's come into the presence of Vespasian in his uh, court in Israel at the time. It's just a single episode in Josephus's life. Whereas when Jesus talks of his coming, he's talking about his whole 
life in the earthly sphere. His ministry is not a specific event in his life, but it's the whole of his coming. So, in the course of the next two lectures, in the second lecture, I want to put a proper Old Testament and Jewish background in place to enable us to understand rightly these I have come sayings of Jesus. And then uh, in the third lecture to look in detail at these I have come statements themselves. And in the course of the discussion, I hope that it becomes clear that pre-existence, far from being an unimportant aspect of the characterization of Jesus in the Gospels, is actually, in fact, integral to it. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.